Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Welcome everybody, welcome to another Macklin's Take bonus episode and in this one we're looking back on conversations we've had with world champions on the podcast. There have been plenty of them and in this one we start with a chat we had with Carl Frotch and this was in the depths of lockdown when we were doing our Make or Break series and we spoke to Carl in detail about two absolutely crucial fights he had when he won the WBC title against Jean Pascal and his first defence in the USA against Jermaine Taylor, which was an unbelievable win for him in the final round. And there was plenty going on around that fight that people may not have been aware of. So it was really interesting to talk to him about that. Always good fun catching up with Carl. Next up is Frankie Gavin, not a professional world champion, but an amateur world champion and still the only English male to win a gold medal at the Amateur World Championships. It's an incredibly difficult competition to medal in. And his name was mentioned a lot in a podcast we did with Paul Walmsley and Stephen Smith, which came out earlier in the week, because it's just difficult to kind of explain, unless you were aware of what was happening at the time, just how good he was, Frankie Gavin, as an amateur fighter. It didn't work out for him at the Olympics the next year, so he never really got the the mainstream coverage and recognition that, that he deserved. But his performances at that World Championship in particular were absolutely astonishing. They really were. Uh, and last but certainly not least, we go back to a chat we had with a good mate of ours, our Sky colleague, Johnny Nelson. Johnny's career, of course, has been... A fascinating one. Lost his first three professional bouts. Will always claim whenever you speak to him that he had no boxing ability whatsoever, but that he stuck with it. He persevered and with a huge amount of guidance from Brendan Ingle, in the end, he made it. So talking to Johnny about all matters, whether it's self-belief, uh, whether it's the, 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 the mental strength that you need to be a champion, it's always really, really interesting. And he had some some fascinating battles that we touched on in, in Make or Break as well. Uh, so that's our three our three cast members for today's podcast. Hope you enjoy it. 
I've just beat Jean Pascal. You know, kind of telling myself that I belong there and telling myself that I can actually do it. But it was, it was annoying. I just won the world title in, in, in England. WBC World Title in my hometown on on national television on terrestrial television ITV and then all of a sudden I've kind of got nowhere to go like you say Sky Sports has gone uh, not gone but limited and you know Sky pulled out a boxing pay per view um, I think it was Eddie Hearn actually his fight with um, the fight he promoted against with David Hay and Audley Harrison I mean it was it was a terrible fight. And I think that was the last pay-per-view before it got brought back. Um, and I brought it back with a Mikel Kessler rematch um, two years later. But yeah, going back to the uh, Jermaine Taylor fight over in Connecticut, in Foxwood Resort Casino in Connecticut, in America. That's uh, where I fought Golovkin. Yes, of course it was. I mean, it's a great venue. I loved it. I thought it was good. It's, it's not Las Vegas and it's... it's, no. it's it's not Atlantic City either, which ain't too clever. It's a strange place, isn't it? It's just it's in the a, middle of nowhere. I think America and casinos are strange places anyway. They're quite lonely and depressing, I think so, anyway. If you go into a good show or a big fight, it's great. But if you're there a week or two weeks, build up to the fight, you just want to be in your room. Yeah, but I think me, I think my next day after Golovkin was a lot more depressing than your next day after Jermaine Taylor. No, no, I can imagine it was. I mean, losing a fight is never it's never great, is it, when you lose, you get beat. You wake up in the morning. Boy, if I hear them fruit machines ringing one more time. <laughs> yeah, I think I lost my plot out there if I was out there too long. But um, mm. no, John Pascal, career-defining fight, really. Really important fight in terms of getting that world title. And then to go over to America... And, and beat Jermaine Taylor, but not only beat him, beat him in the manner in which I did, but then for it for it to not get noticed by anybody in Britain because it was shown on it was shown Sunday Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon on ITV with adverts between every round, so everybody knew the result anyway. There's adverts between every round. No one's interested. I mean, yeah. it's a tragedy really. But Showtime paid me half decent money. Not the kind of money that people are earning now for defending world titles against top fighters and number one challenge, number one mandatory challengers. But I mean, me, it was decent money at the time, wasn't it? It was yeah. decent money with what was around at the time. Listen, I had a seven pound a week paper round, and when I when I quit boxing for England, I was on thirteen grand a, a year working at Diamond Cable, which then was NTL, now Virgin Media, and I turned professional. And when I made fifteen grand for the Commonwealth title fight. I couldn't believe I had 15 grand in my hand. I went out and bought a R32 Golf. I absolutely loved it. I'd, I'd never had that kind of money. And then I started to realise, but the old British title, 25 grand, defend it, 25, 30 grand. That's the sort of money I was earning. And I was stacking up a couple of figures in the bank. And I've always been quite business minded. I did a business and finance course at Clarendon College. And a good friend of mine was into property massively. Avatar Singh, um, a Sikh geezer that I've known for quite a few years. So he sort of got me... He gave me the idea of of getting onto the property ladder, and 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 that that's where I've made most of my investments with with the money that I've earned. So I've been very astute with my money, and I never really looked at how much I was earning per fight. I never really boxed for the money, whether that was stupid or not. I'd always boxed for the love of boxing and for the titles. Even years later, when I'd made plenty of money through the Super Six, Eddie Hearn said to me, and I'm fast forwarding a little bit now, but he said, "Listen, you're due an easy fight. You're due a knockover." But then 
the Lucian Butte fight was put in front of me for the same money. And it wasn't big money. And I took the Butte fight because there was an IBF world title at stake. And I just lost to Andre Ward. So I didn't even think about the money. I was thinking, I want that world title belt because I love boxing and I want to become world champion again. Well, I do remember you saying, um, it's in your book actually, I think, that after you beat Pascal um, the next week, you were doing some grouting and putting in a fireplace because you would you would get back to work, get back to working on your properties. But just to get back to the transition between those two fights, as you mentioned, you're on terrestrial TV, you've got home advantage in your hometown, and then all of a sudden, a few months later, everything is different. You're away from home, it's very unfamiliar. As you say, a lot of people didn't even really realise that the the fight was on. I mean, mentally, as, as we've alluded to, that's that's a bit of a, a culture shock in its in itself. And then there were problems in the build-up again. You, you tore ankle ligaments. You had, a, you had a problem with your eye. I mean, were you at any point close to not fighting against Jermaine Taylor? Because it would, by the sound of it, have been understandable if you tried to kick that one back. No, I was very close to not fighting again, but not out of my own choice. You said there about my ankle. I, I rolled my ankle three weeks before, and I can remember exactly what it was. It was on Manor Road in Gedling. I was running with my best mate, Adam Fuchs, at the time. And I can remember I was absolutely flying. I felt super fit three weeks before the fight. I was about 12 stone, one pounds, which is 169 pounds, and I fight at 168. And I was coming down Gedling Road, crossed the road, and there's some cars coming. So I ran in front of some cars and got between them and then misjudged the curb, and it was dark. And my ankle sort of, my foot a half went on the curb and half off the curb. So it rolled, it tipped off the curb and rolled my right ankle. And all my weight was on my foot. So I fell over, got into a commando roll. Because when you're running quite a lot, you fall over a little. I fell over quite a lot running. I fell over around the woods and hitting tree stumps and misjudging stuff. But I kind of, I'm quite good at falling. So I've, I've rolled over my right shoulder, did a commando roll. But I was going too fast to stand up. So I did two rolls and then I stood up. And I thought, I'm all right, I can keep running. So I'm, I'm carrying on running. And then I, I fastly realised that actually I'm in, I'm in absolute agony and my right ankle was killing me. And uh, then I stopped and started walking. Like I walked and then I stopped. And a car pulled up next to me and said, bloody hell, mate, are you all right? I, I, saw, I saw that. I said, oh, yeah, yeah no, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'll, I'll walk it off, I'll be all right. He goes, bloody hell, are you sure, are you sure? Your hat's, I had a hat on when I was running like a headband. I left that, fell off my head, that was back there. He'd picked it up. And I was walking, I looked down at my foot and my ankle had ballooned up almost instantly. So my ankle was swelled up straight away. And if for your ankle to swell up like that straight away, you know you've torn something or done something bad. So I jumped in his car and this geezer drove me home, he did. Drove me and Adam home and I went home, put my foot on the top of the, on the chair in, in the kitchen and looked at it and I could see it like swelling up like a balloon. I got the ice pack on it. And yeah, my ankle was terrible. And two or three days I went for a scan, torn all my ligaments in my ankle, got a brace for it. My foot went black, all my leg went black up to my knee. So my whole right side of my leg and my foot was terrible. I mean, the blood inside that was... So I didn't think I was going to be able to going to be able to box. And I really wanted to box. I wanted to defend my title. I wanted to... Um... How many weeks out was this, Carl, from the fight? This was about... I'd be able to tell you exactly. I've got all my diaries down there, but... I think it's about three and a half weeks. I mean, I didn't hardly have any time. My right ankle still hurts me now. I bounce on the trampoline with my kiddies. And if I flex my foot up too much, the, the ankle ligament, it, I can't walk for a couple of days. It's an absolute killer. But I just I just thought, I'm still fighting. I'm not bothered. I'm not interested in pulling out. I want to fight. I just, I'm 30, like Andy said, I'm 31, 32 years old. I'm world champion. I'm going over to America. 
I want, you know, I just don't want to miss any opportunities. So I thought the fight was off, but I was still trying to go through with it. And after about a week of having physio, and uh, did I have my, I don't know if I had my foot drained. I don't know if I had some fluid drained out of my ankle so I could have a scan. It was quite bad anyway. But ultimately, I was cycling. I was on the step machine where your feet are on the ground and you're doing like the, the st- I, don't know what I don't know what their machines are called where you're holding them ski things. Oh, cross trainer. Yeah, the cross train. I was on that, and it's not as good as running, but I was doing that. I was cycling on the um, spinning machines, and I'd already done all my camp. I only got three weeks to sharpen up, but I can remember I could not run. There's no way could I run. Uh, but we went over to finish off the camp in in um, in Canada. Um, so before the Jermaine Taylor fight, my main sparring partner was Jean Pascal, amazingly enough. And uh, the, the place I stayed at Niagara on the Lake in Canada, which is just across the border for North America and Connecticut. It's northeast, isn't it, Connecticut? It's like at the top. Yeah, top yeah, yeah, so, yeah, right up there. So that was on the border. So you know what? I probably rolled my ankle. I, I may have rolled my ankle about five weeks, five and a half weeks before the fight because I had a couple of weeks in England and I still had them. I still had about three weeks in Canada. So it couldn't have been three and a half weeks. I, like I say, I know exactly, but it yeah. was close enough for my foot and my ankle to still be bad and I couldn't run right on the run up to the fight. But I did alternative stuff for my fitness. And um, really enjoyed it in Canada. Niagara on the lake, amazing facilities. I forgot what the place was called, but it was a spa that we stayed in, and we used the facilities there, a bit of a fitness gym, um, a little bit poncy, but the, the boxing gym was around the corner. And Jean Pas- um, yeah, Jean Pascal turned up with his, his older brother and gave me loads of sparring and loads of training and fitness. Adam Harris was there, a guy who's friends with McKenzie, who's actually Canadian. And that was my final preparation, my final march forward for defending my world title against Jean Pascal. But I sustained an injury years before that to my eye. I've got a I've got a reoccurring corneal erosion. So anybody in the medical profession will know what that is. But for the layman, that's the skin on your eye, your cornea. I've got a tear on the eye. I've still got it now. It doesn't affect me really much unless I'm in really dry conditions like air conditioning overnight. But the eye teared open again. And when the eye's torn open, you can't open your eye because it stings too much when the air gets to it. And when you close your eye, your eyelid, the inside of your eyelid stings your eye. I've got lenses now, so when my eye tears open, which it, which it does periodically, always did it when I was sparring, it used to really wind me up. I put like a contact lens on my eye, it's like a protective layer, but my eye was that bad, I could not open my eye, I couldn't close it, the, the white of my eye was bright red, and I'm a week out, I'm a week out, and the Americans want me to go and do an eye test, You got. To do, I don't know if you know yourself, but you have to do yeah. the American like medical, yeah. so I went for my Probably medical, late, yeah. Past all that, they put the dilation drops in. My eye was stinging. I said, oh, I got something in my eye last week. Just it's a, No, sorry, this morning. It's just this morning. It's just unlucky. I was trying to blag it. And um, they put a dye in my eye, dilated the eyes. Then they looked down my eye and they said, you've got a tear, you've got a tear on your cornea. I was like, oh, bloody hell, how did that happen? I went, I'll be all right. It's not really bothering me. Like trying to blag it to get through. And I actually in pain, got... really. That's sore. I've done that. I've done, yeah, that. Really. Well, I've done it where you scratched it in spiring. You get a flick and... Then it gets infected, and, and like you yeah. say, you can't close your eye because it rubs against yeah. it. It's agony. Hey, my eye was stinging. It's horrible. It's, it's like I didn't sleep for a couple of nights properly. Really disruptive. And I managed to get some steroid cream, which I was a bit concerned about because obviously the drug test, so you, certain asthma pumps and nasal sprays and eye drops. But this eye drop had steroid cream in it. I've never had anything like it. I put this drop in off this doctor, and about two hours later, my eye was healed. Like I've yeah. never had that. It's the only thing that works, though. I dropped some of that in it and I'm telling you like literally the same day my eye was okay and that was a week before the fight probably five days before 
So I was thinking, right, nothing else can go wrong now. Nothing else can go wrong. I've done my ankle, I'm back. My eye's bad. That's back now. And I, and I just thought, this is meant to be. And that gave me that, that mindset to go ahead and um, step into the ring confidently that actually I'm meant to be here. Now it's just down to me. I've got to put a performance in. And lo and behold, John Pascal was, uh, sorry, Jermaine Taylor was far too fast for me. And he, he was on form to start with, wasn't really, he? He looked really like going up to super middleweight and giving him yeah. a new lease of life. Listen, he hit him with a right hand, he hit him with a couple of jabs. I, couldn't, I didn't see him coming. He hit him with an uppercut. And the right hand he hit him with that dropped me in round three. I didn't know where I was. didn't know what day of the week it was. I, was. I just felt I was being outclassed. And when he dropped me, I thought, this is it for me, man. I've, I've, I've come this far, world champion. I was kind of dejected and kind of, I wasn't going to quit. I'd never quit. But in my head, I was thinking, I don't even know. the belief here. left you a little bit. The belief yeah, left it did. you in the it did. But it was at the end of round three and I sat back down in my corner. I can't even remember what Rob McCracken told me and what he said and how calm he was. I can kind of remember him saying, just get behind your boxing, just jab and move. Don't commit, don't reach, don't overreach. Um, but how much of that sunk in, I don't know. Well, I did just box and move and jab. And slowly but surely, as the rounds got through with that Jermaine Taylor fight, he started to tire. I was tiring as well. I was absolutely exhausted. But he was more tired than me. And I've got this thing in me. You were digging in, weren't you? You were digging digging in. I mean, I'm sure he was digging deep, but I refused to quit, mate. I I, I just thought I've got three or four rounds left here and I've started to get to him, started to catch him. He was hurt. And, um, yeah, I mean... Everybody's seen the Jermaine Taylor fight. If you haven't, shame on you. Go and have a look at it. Carl Froch, Jermaine Taylor. What a fight. What a defence that was. I mean, I've got to say it, because I said this to you, didn't I? We were talking about people got to get on. I said, you've got to talk get Carl on, talking about the Jermaine Taylor fight. And you said, yeah, and the Pascal one. Because for me, the Carl's win against Jermaine Taylor, I remember it happening. I remember him stepping up, losing two fights with Public. So obviously, I was a middleweight, and Public was a fight I wanted. And Jermaine Taylor... Going up to super middleweight, I remember how big he was at what you know at middleweight at 160 pounds. I remember thinking he'll have a new lease of life. He will at 168, and he'll have that speed and he cracks really hard. And like Carl said, there he was boxing so well, but he just grinded him down and grinded him down. And to get to get that knockout when he's behind the cards with like 10, I was it 10 seconds or something left on the cards. That's got to be one of the best ever wins by a British fighter away from Britain. Maybe so, the best, you it's know. Certainly the best comeback. It's certainly the best comeback win. But it doesn't get the because it was didn't get the build up and the profile. It it, get, it can be forgotten about a little bit, but it's it, it it a crime because it was almost like it great. never happened. It was almost like it never happened because, and if you'd lost, it would have been almost like the win against Pascal never happened. That that's how kind of important those those two fights were, really. But but just to go back to some some good old-fashioned shithousery which took place during during fight week because we spoke to Seltzer about this fight um, down at Fitzroy Lodge last summer and he's got clear memories of it because he said that the week, your injuries aside, that was one thing. He said that the week itself was difficult because the press engagements were in New York uh, rather than in the, in the casino. The Wayne was in the casino, but everything else was in New York. So you're in cars all day. And then on the day of the fight, a limousine was supposed to turn up to take you to the venue. It never turned up. So you decided to walk. You're about half an hour behind in terms of your preparations. 
Then the dressing room's freezing cold. The dressing room was a joke. It was tiny as well. Then they march you out of the dressing room. Um, they just come in unannounced when they, I think they might have said 20 minutes and a minute later they just say, right, come on, right, you've got to go now. Then take you to the holding area and just leave you there for 20 minutes. I mean, these are the kinds Dude. of... And then I went down in a small that... lift. I went down in a lift and the lift opened up in the venue and it was only a small venue. There was 3,700 people there and it was, it was like, a, like a concert hall. So it's like a stage. The ring was on a stage and the the seats are up. You know what a concert hall looks like. And that's what it was like, 3,790% American. But they're not really majorly behind Taylor or behind anyone particular. But because Jermaine Taylor's American, he's getting the cheers. And, you know, I turned the crowd around, but it was very hostile. I mean, the changing rooms was tiny. Rob McCracken, as soon as he got in the changing rooms, and he found out that that was the changing room we was, we was, with, we was stuck with and that was it. It was like, no, this is fine. Plenty of room in here, no problem. Because Rob never panicked me. I was mindset. Yeah, if Rob's panicking, I panic. So Rob picked the sofa up, chucked it out the door, picked up some other furniture and a, and, a, and a table, got that out the door, just shoved it on the corridor, didn't care less. And then we had some room. And then we was able to get the bandages on. The gloves weren't even on. And they came and tapped on the door and said, you got five minutes. And like Usually I like to get my gloves on, get my tape around my gloves, feel comfortable. Yeah, did that hands. feel you a, a little unsettled? Because that would I hate that rushing. I'll tell you something now. We we got into a lift, and I can remember that the corner man, what was the corner man's name? It was an American. It was a it was a quite a big black American geezer. It was sound. He was Ger- Gerald something. Gerald Gerald something. It was a proper sound geezer. I give him a give him a few grand um, cash bonus because he was like a lucky child for me. He was the last couple of days, and we went into this lift, and he said. Just get ready, son. This lift, this lift leads to the, the to the arena. And I was like, hey, where are we? I didn't even see the venue. I didn't see the ring, anything. The lift opens up and I come out of the lift and there's literally Americans shouting at me, English pig, some beer went over me. And I'm looking and thinking, that geezer just chucked beer on me. I was going to I was gonna do this and have a nice stretch out with my arms and open them up. I punch him in the face. I was that wind up. Because he was stuck to my right while we're waiting to be called forward. And he's chucked beer on me and I thought... I could knock him out here. I could backhand him straight in the face. And the reason, the only reason I didn't do a big stretch and smack him in the face is because he had glasses on. I was thinking, if I have his eye out of summer, that's out of order. He's only chucked beer on me. He don't deserve to lose an eye. But I was fuming. And um, we walked to the ring and I was like, I walked to the ring, got in the ring and I'm looking over thinking, oh yeah, Jermaine Taylor's here. I'm looking at the big screen as well, the big screen. And it wasn't until the start of announcing Jermaine Taylor's name and he starts scraping his foot on the floor he does like a ball thing, doesn't he? Where he puts his gloves up and yeah. he rubs the bottom of the soles of his feet on the canvas. And I was looking up at the big TV screen, watching Jermaine Taylor do that. And I thought, he did that when he fought Hopkins and he did that when he fought. I thought, oh shit, I'm in with Jermaine Taylor. I better switch on. Because the reality of it only set in and hit me when I was in the ring on the night in the arena. And that was dangerous because I was, was It was so rushed in the build-up. So rushed. So rushed. I was half asleep. I was so focused on my injuries and my eye and my ankle. And I just, it felt like a daze. I was sparring, I was sparring John Pascal in Canada one minute. Then I'm over in New York and then over in Connecticut. It was, it was just a mad, it was a whirlwind of an experience. It was all new to me. But bottom line, and ultimately, I'm just a tough son of a bitch. I was fit enough. <laughs> I was fit enough. And I'm not blowing smoke up my ass because I'm just... No, no, I'm no. Listen, tough. you're allowed. You, you, no, it's that's fair. It's and I just, <laughs> I, just, I just got through it the best way I can. And I thought, I'm not giving up. If I have to get flattened or run out of steam where, where they've got to carry me back to the changing rooms, I'm prepared to do that because I'm the champ. I've got the belt. 
And when Jermaine Taylor started to fade, because I caught him with a couple of shots in round nine or ten, he, he stepped back and he stumbled a bit. When I knew I could hurt him, I started getting all this confidence. And all of a sudden, I've got my second win. As knackered as I was, you know yourself the feeling. Yeah, you yeah. feel like you're, you're back in round one again. And he was backing up. He was, he was holding on a little bit. But to be fair to him, he never held on fully. If he'd have held on in the last, in the dying seconds of the last round, he would have held on to me and the bell would have gone and he'd have won on points. And fair play to Jermaine Taylor because he was asked in an interview about two months later that I read. And someone said to him, you could have held on and you'd have got that on points. And he said, no, I can't win like that. That's not how a man wins. Hey, 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 kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! It's interesting the Commonwealth Games, isn't it? Because the World Championships and the European Championships are rock-hard tournaments, really, really hard tournaments. We've won a lot of medals at Euros in the last couple, so now I think people have got this idea that that's kind of normal. It's not normal at all. Getting a medal in that's really difficult. Both of those two are a lot harder than the Commonwealth Games, but the Commonwealth Games is on the BBC, um, like the Olympics, so everybody sees it. And I think that's why it kind of has the profile that it has. Yeah, they're ten times as hard. To be fair, in the Europeans I went to, like uh, I boxed a Turk called Aidan Salchuk. I think I don't know if you know him. He boxed Guerrero as a pro. I think he won his first nineteen, so he knocked it. He was absolutely crazy. Because my style was so awkward, I kept smiling at him and winking at him. He threw me to the floor and kicked me in the ribs. I remember it, and then he spat in the ref's face. He's trying to hit the ref. He got banned from boxing for five years, amateur boxing, and his trainer got banned from amateur boxing for life. Then I remember afterwards, I was in uh, the calf, and he walked in behind me, and he was a big Turk. I was only a young boy. I thought, oh, I'm dead here. I'm getting it, and then Bell, you and Jamie Cox come and tap me on the shoulder, and I don't worry, we're here. And I was kind of happy over there. But it was good how we all had a bond with each other on the England team. Like Jamie Cox, he come from Swindon. He's not like a lad from a typical city. He's like, like a farmer kid, and the way we all bonded with him, it was brilliant. And the friends you make over the years. Well, that's it, isn't it? You talk about people you box with on England teams. and do you, do you stay in touch? Do you stay in touch with many of them? Yeah, I do. Stephen Smith, obviously, I was just sparring with Quala for his last fight. So I was down there a lot with Stephen Smith. Still speak to Tony Jeffries quite often. Cal Yafai was on the team with us. I speak to him. There was five of us who were all really close, like Digal Smith, Danny Price from Scarborough. Tony Jeffries and me, we used to like call ourselves the five juniors, even when we were seniors and not we were 22 and that was still going because we come along together. David Price is still chatting to go after Neil Perkins. So yeah. David Price boxing uh, on July the 20th against against David Allen. I mean, he, he's another good example of how the expectation, I think, it's not really the expectation, I don't think, when it comes to turning pro because if you've done a lot as an amateur, because that's always been there in fairness. Uh, maybe it was even worse in years gone by when the ABAs would be live on the BBC and if you were ABA champion that was a massive big deal I think what has changed is that it's sports fans have become a lot more kind of binary now either you're a success or you're a failure either you're brilliant or you're shit 
Yeah. And so I think it's reasonable to expect Frankie Gavin having won a gold medal at the World Championships. It's reasonable to say that he might go on and win a world title. Yeah. But it's not reasonable to say that he's a failure if he doesn't. And I think that's the difference now. It's, it's, I think that's how people think about things. Look at Joshua. The match like and he's getting. I'd love to have what he's got in the bank, half what he's got in the bank. I'd love to have done what he'd done as a pro. And everybody else who slagged him would have loved to have done that as well. The only people who could probably say I wouldn't have liked Mayweather or Canelo or someone. But everyone else would have wanted to do what Joshua's done. And the amount of stick he gets, uh, the amount of people who come up to me and go, I mean, I can't shit, look how crappy his chin is. Like, well, his, his chin isn't great, no, but he's far from shit. I don't like him as a person, but I'm still not going to say he's a shit fighter because he's not. But uh, the, any, if you, you're not winning, you're crap. And if you're winning, you're the best thing ever. I remember it, people say, like, when I was winning everything, the amount of offers I used to get to go places, to come here, let's do this. Come Frank, come here, I'll pay for it, don't worry. When you're losing, you don't even hear of them. When I got the European Tour for last year, I'm not saying I was even going to win it, but the amount of people who came back out of the woodwork saying, yeah, we'd come in, come get us a free ticket or whatever. So people jump. When you, things are going well, people are on you. When they're not, you've got to make sure you pick your friends and your circle wisely. So that's, that's as true as people say it is, because it's, it, it's almost, in a way, become a bit of a, a cliche. But I remember, uh, I remember a great line from Sergio Martinez, and he said that, after, that myself, yeah. after he beat Chavez, after he beat Helio Cesar Chavez, he had, what was it, 1,200 missed calls, he said, or something like that. Yeah. After he lost to Cotto, he had four, three were an unknown number, and one was his mum. So people do, they love a winner, don't they? But, but as I say, as an observer like me, you hear that a lot, but that, that's, that really happens, does it? That really happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the other element of that is um, people probably think, well, what are they going to say to you as well? I don't think that it's not. I don't think it's necessarily that they don't care because there will be people that you know are friends of yours and and and, and you know they'll be gutted for you, but they're probably also realizing you, you, what are they going to say to you? They're going to say you're going to be devastated. Thinking, well, you know, I want to ring. What I want to say, but uh, it's nice to get the text or the call. Yeah, it is nice to get it. Just even though you know that they're thinking of you or, or you hope they are. It's, it's nice to get it. Um, yeah, look, it, it, everyone loves a winner, don't they? Let's face it. Everyone, people want to be at the parties. They don't want, they want to be at the weddings. They don't want to be at the funerals. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, you know, I think if, you, if, you, if you're a true, if you're really with someone, you've got to go to both. Do you think it's gone a bit far now, the, the way that, just the way that, not just sports fans, just people across the board generally do view things. It is, it is as I said, very, very binary. It's either... It seems to be have gone as far as either you like Joshua or you like Fury. You can't like both, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just it's, it's madness, isn't it, really? I think social media is mad full stuff. You know what I mean? Like it, the, the amount of, like you say, experts that are on there. Like, I mean, we, we, we commentate most weeks on the fights. And then, you know, if someone... If we're not commentating on the fight the way Joe Bluggs sitting in his living room with his bird sees the fight... We, 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 we match room bias because we're not seeing the fight how he sees the fight. He, he's never thought, oh, well, maybe they're experts because he bucks for world titles and he's on it every week and Andy's immersed in boxing and he's commentating on them every week. Maybe, maybe they're seeing it right and maybe, just maybe, I'm seeing it wrong. They, they never sit there and think that. They, they think we must be match room bias because I'm not seeing the fight exactly how he's seeing the fight. And he's probably got his bird next to him telling him that he's the cleverest thing in the world and he's right you're a prick and he's right <laughs> yeah. hey, man. I, don't, I don't mind it I don't mind it to be honest everybody's got their views and, and they always will have and that's, that's absolutely that's absolutely fine but I think if you're actually uh, if you're the man in the arena with the dust on his face as the quote goes and, and the sweat on his hands you know he 
there's just I don't really see what is to be gained from just being quite so hard line about what is success and and what is failure. You you won a British title and a Commonwealth title. Lots of people don't do that. You won a British title outright. Most British champions don't do that. So if you'd been offered it when you turned pro, you would have expected more because you were young and and you didn't necessarily think that you knew it all. But there's an optimism there that. <laughs> I don't want to sound too downbeat, but there's an optimism there that just gets beaten out of you after after a period of time. Frankie had a great career, you know what I mean? He achieved an awful lot, more than most people dream of. Could he have achieved more? 100%. He had the talent to achieve more, and he would have been a bit more disciplined and lived a better life. I think he definitely would have, but he still had a great career, much better career than 99.9% of those people giving him stick on social media. Ever had the, the, only, the only failure is when you don't try. But being there, daring to be great, yeah, you will lose, you will fail, you will make mistakes. Listen, as a, as a young man, people are asking, you, you have to be a certain way. Yeah, you, you need an old head on your shoulders, really. You know, they say youth is wasted on the young, and that is such a true <laughs> statement. You know, but it, it's very difficult to put an old head on young shoulders. That's why having, you know, I suppose having the right role models, looking up to the right people, that's key. Having the right mentor, someone that... You're looking up to, they're older than you, but that you, that, that you do look up to them enough and respect them enough that you're going to follow their advice, you're going to be guided by them. Because people did, any, all the mistakes I made, people told me not to make them. It's not like, it's not like these aren't new mistakes. <laughs> people before me made those mistakes, and people before them made those same mistakes, and people after me made them, and the people after them are going to make them. These are the same mistakes. But it's, it's having that person who you respect enough that will guide you, that you will let guide you, that you'll follow, you know, but, and because there's the other influences out there that you're likely to follow and be tempted to follow that probably aren't great for you. And that, that's the key, isn't it? Getting that mentor, getting that person that, that, that's, got your, that you've, that's got your ear, that you respect and that you listen and that you follow. Because if you don't have that, someone else is going to fill that void. And there's, there's, there's umpteen amount of bad influence out there to fill that void. And then you're following the wrong path. And it's, it's so easy done. And like you say, when, you're, when, when life's kind of structured and you've got purpose and you've got routine, you know, you can stay on track. But it's that in between the fights where it's very easy to go wrong. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. I think it's hard though. I think it's it's difficult when you're in a profession where your peak is comes when you're young that's just unavoidable because it's a physical sport and your mental maturity your mental peak if you like if you like doesn't come when you're young it comes it comes when you get older experience I'll, exactly exactly and you just have to try and merge the two as, as best you can but inevitably things are going to going to fall through the cracks and there's just no point really looking back on anything with any real regret because Not you did all. what you did it the way you did it we all did, yeah, whatever yeah. it is, whatever it is you're doing. You do it the way you do it. You did the best you could at the time. And, yeah, what happened, happened. That Particularly happened. in a sport like boxing. And, 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 and it's, all, it's, all, it's the journey. It's all part of the journey. And you had a great journey 
yeah. as I did, and we all did, and, and you, you're a part of it, and it's like, could you done better? Cause it's, everyone could say that in life, couldn't they? Everyone makes. If you're not making mistakes, well, then you're not living. It's easy. It's easy to sit on the outside and not. It's easy to be that guy in the stand telling Alex Ferguson what he should be doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, everyone. Everyone's an armed sea expert. Well, you get that. If he if he took us to one, then mate, you go down there. You pick the team. You don't do it. He'd absolutely shit himself because he's just a guy in the stand telling everyone he's an armed seat, armchair expert. Do you know an expert on social media, coating everyone what they should and shouldn't do. But wouldn't, hasn't got the balls to sit there and put himself in a. Yeah, he doesn't want to dare to fail. You know, failure is painful, isn't it? Making mistakes, losing yeah. is painful. You, you're getting laughed at, but or whatever. You're not not achieving is what. It's painful, but it's. The only failure is not trying. You know, if you go in there and you try, you will you will fail sometimes. You will lose. You will make mistakes. But that's you get up and you go again. And you you just got to keep getting up and keep going again. And at the end of it all, when your career's done and dusted, you look back and think, well, you know what? I won a lot more than I lost, and it was a great journey. And that's it. You know, and then you you know if you take the mistakes you made and the wisdom you've got from that now, hopefully, and then try and instill that into others. And help them help other people, help other fighters achieve. I think that's all you can really do. I think with boxing too, particularly given the the amount of international boxing you did as an amateur, you just get to go to places that you just never would have imagined that that you would end up going to. I mean, particularly on that kind of circuit, you never would have thought growing up in. Frankie in didn't see, think he was going to get out of Small Leaf Park. <laughs> Israel, Ukraine, everywhere. It's mad. And these countries I'd never ever went to my whole life unless it was for boxing. Been to America four times for boxing. So it's crazy. But uh, like you just said, then I didn't I never used to think about leaving Birmingham, to be honest. And then now I've been every, I've probably, I think I'm for 42 different countries I've been to, or 42 different cities. So. The other week when we put him down, not not England, not included, or Britain, it was crazy when I threw it down. Yeah, if you if you looked down, if you made a leap, got on the ball, then a list of paper, and you put down all the positives, and you put down all the negatives, be like this and this, yeah, you know, yeah. you know what I mean. So I think that's ultimately the end of it all. You have to look back, and yeah, you you'll know where you went wrong, and and and, and let them be a lesson. But I think to dwell on them's a massive mistake. I think you got to look at the positives and realise. The positives massively outweighed the negatives, and be happy and be proud. That's what I. You know. I do think too. You have to retain the sense of humour about the whole thing because just having this conversation here, most of the time you've been leaning back on the on the ring post there, just with a little kind of devilish grin on your face as Matt's outlined some of the the pitfalls. And professional sport is. You're like big kids in a way, aren't you? Because you're playing out a dream, as hard as it is, physically and mentally boxing. You're, you're doing something that so many other people would just, just give their right arm to do. And, and you take it seriously, but at the same time, you've just got to make sure your eyes are open and you're looking around you and you're taking it all in whilst you're doing it. Because it's, it's madness, really, isn't it, in terms of it being a way to earn a living? Yeah, crazy. I'll uh, keep saying then. I was in gyms before and I never seen anyone really good. I think f- f- as from about 15 seen, seen you in the ABAs was the first time I thought how good he is. I never really used to look around and think, oh, he's great, oh, he's good. I never. But then when I started seeing better for a lot, I remember when I first went, because the palace I thought that yours the night before, because you took me. And uh, when I went there, I started seeing different things, thinking, how good are these? And I think from being around better fighters made me a better fighter. Like Mario Kindle in a box team, and uh, I think that made, I know I lost, but it's the biggest learning curve I've ever had. Stuff like that. I think, like you said about bitterness, if you're bitter now, I'm only going to be bitter for my other fighters. They're, no, they're only not going to, they're not even going to enjoy being with me. 
Well, to be honest, I'm not saying I'm the funniest person ever, but I have the most banner in this gym and most of the gyms I've been to. I always look for a laugh and a joke, and I think it keeps the other fighters on their toes as well because we've got Charlie Gaffey, you know the Gaffey as well. I remember he come here 10-1-4. Uh, recently, now his last five fights have been with me. He's won, he's won five. He's won a Midland title. He's won the East Midlands Box Cup. Three fights in three days. Beat some good kids. I think uh, now that we're having a bit more banter, we're not like... Every training wise is serious. Once we have a break, we'll have a laugh and a joke. We always go out together, we go out for food together, we always chill around and say we're going to watch football together. Last week we had a charity game, football game, game of football. Five of them come and watch and support it, and we had food after. I think I'm not taking it too seriously. Obviously, I'll never take them out for a beer or anything, but I'll take them out for food, I'll go and have a laugh with them, but then they've got to know when they're in the gym, it's serious. Do you think then, listen as you talk then, do you think then at times um, the seriousness, Maybe the pressure of the professional game got to you a little bit. Oh, most definitely, yeah. I thought, of course, yeah. Everyone expected to think, oh, Frank Evans going to piss this, he's going to win this, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. I think a couple of times when I boxed for Sal, was one of the first ones that the pro people were going, he's not strong enough, he's going to get KO'd by him, he's going to get done by him. I remember getting into my head a bit, but then when I was in the changing room, it's in Olympia, everyone knows what that's like. We're both warming up next to each other. It was crazy, a British come off title fight, both undefeated, warming up next to each other in a derelict building. And then uh, I looked at him on the pad and I thought, there's no way this kid's going to beat me. And I was half laughing to myself then. My confidence flew up. I was like a really nervous fire horse thought I was going to get beat. But the minute I'd be doing that ring walk, I thought I could beat anyone. It was mad. It's interesting that because we were talking to, to Frotch a few weeks ago, Carl Frotch, and, and he, more than most people, would probably give off this kind of image just because of the way he boxed and his chin and, 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 and what he looked like, I guess, that that he'd be bulletproof and, and just wouldn't feel nervous. But he said it was the opposite, particularly when he was young. He, he described to us about how he was waiting for a junior tournament to start or a junior fight to start once, and he went to the to the bathroom and he was just thinking, what, you know, what, what, I could just jump out the window now and run away. And it'd be fine. Like, I'd get over it. I might get a bit of bit of Frankie, ribbing, but it'd Frank, be fine. Frankie's laughing because he can completely identify with that. Probably the two worst people I've ever seen before a fight was Frutch and Frankie Gavin. Frankie, Frankie and Frutch, like, and two top, top, top fighters, yet time and time again, just like, nerves gone, weren't they? I remember when I watched Witter, I was scared in the chamber, Billy Joe walked in, what the fuck are you worrying for? You're smashing him, he's got nothing on you, look how old he is, and he just sort of turned it all around, Billy Joe did not make me see a different thing to it, yeah, I was really, you know, Joe Selkirk was another one, Sean Farhead didn't he throw a gum shot out the window once? <laughs> yeah, mate of mine, he, uh, he said, I was in the gym the once, this was a small eight, and, uh, I just got there I just started skipping anyway and Bill Meddings he was like the matchmaker of the gym the secretary or whatever come in and goes oh, Faye what are you doing skipping your boxing tonight he said oh I've got no stuff Bill he said he goes don't matter we've got, we've got spare stuff in the car he's like oh no he says I've got to the, the gym I've got to the place anyway I've weighed in and that he says you've got to go and see the doctor I've got my gum shell out the bag and I threw it in a bush you know he didn't want to box do you know what I mean next thing put Mark Ramsey's gone it's alright I've got a spare like they said, you know those ones that you heat up in the kettle or something? He said, I was looking at Mark Ramsey thinking, I hate you. You know what I mean? He said, anyway, he goes, I've boxed, won. I was buzzing, do you know what I mean? I was delighted that it happened, but he was terrified. He just did not want to box, do you know what I mean? Because it was sprung on him. And, he, he, you know, he was obviously thinking, you know, the nerves got the better of him, but in the end, he, he boxed and won. So were you like that from the start then? Because you can't have been, surely, because if you had been, then you just never would have kept going with it. I weren't as bad at first. I think the, the outside pressure maybe might have happened because as an amateur, I was the same thing with Billy Meddings. I remember I was at, I was at a show in uh, the Beaufort Social Club. It's about a mile from my house. 
And Bill's going, come here, Frank. I'm a man. I kind of pop in my hand, half drank, and a pack of crisps. Because jump on them scales, so I back the pump. No, because no, keep your clothes on. So I've jumped on in my clothes. And yeah, that's sound. I've, I've gone, I've gone what, what? And he goes, you're fighting? I'm no gum to your boots. Because yeah, go get them. So I had to run home, get them, run back, and then fight. I mean, I won pretty comfortably, but it just weren't the point the way I used to do with Bill Meddings. I'd get a phone call on the, the day, the minute I'd leave school. Come on, you're fighting tonight, stuff like that. But yeah, the nerves, I think, as I got better, they come on. And pressure. Pressure, yeah. But I'd say more as a pro than an amateur. Nah, shit, as an amateur, I used to be bad as well. I remember that as I got to senior level, when I went to my first tournament at 64, I boxed on pole. He was six foot four. couldn't believe it. He just beat Bradley Saunders. And I was devastated in the change of thing. I drew him, I was gutted, but then I went and beat him. Even the Commonwealth Games, I remember I fought a kid called Avidu Bobinat. He's Romanian, but he boxed for Cyprus. He knocked uh, Dave Mulholland out. He weren't a bad lad, he just beat the two Olympic bronze medalists and I was nervous in there. But I didn't realise how good I was. And I used to think, worry about them than worry about my, my strengths. And um, obviously, Andy and myself were fighting before Nigel. And so Brent said, you remember, it's not about him, it's about Nigel. So he said, I'll be done in. You've got to do his head in. You've got to frustrate him, get under his skin. You know, make him make a mistake. And he'll make one mistake, he'll make two mistakes, but you've got to make him make a mistake. Don't care what the crowd say. And so, I'm all, all right. We got in the ring. And, and Andy was strong. He was tough, but he was a bit robotic. And, and remember, he's fighting a kid that hasn't got the confidence to match his ability in me. So I'm picking Andy, popping Andy, frustrating Andy and slipping. So I'm not really throwing much. But Andy's getting. Andy needed to set his feet and let the shot go before he'd, he'd really try and put any power in. So he never really got any strong shots up. I think he threw a long left once, caught me in the chest. I thought, there's not much there. Then he got frustrated. I think it was around seven or around eight when I stopped it. He, he, he was out of pure frustration. He, he lunged and he was out of range and left himself wide open. And that's when he got clipped. So he was out of frustration, boredom and... and and his head was done in. Every round, his, his cornerman shouting his head off at him. But he's also thinking, I've got to get back to the dressing room for Nigel. So, so, so he had, his head was done in. Uh, so, so the fight was done. That was it. I can remember going back on the coach to Sheffield. And when we're on the coach in Sheffield, uh, everybody from, the, from a few people from the gym had come. We're on this coach, our own coach. And uh, my old man was there. Now I look back on it, I think that was a really, it was a really insensitive thing I did. But, but it, I didn't realise what I was doing. And there was a guy, an old guy called Bill, uh, who used to come in the gym to collect the subs. He'd like clean the gym after everybody was there. And I'm sat on the, my old man sat there, uh, one seat behind me. No, he sat next to me. And um, he had the belt in his lap. And Bill said, can I have a look at the belt? And I went, yeah, sure. And, and this, is, this is where I knew I wasn't like many other fighters. And Bill said, I've seen one of these. I said, I'll tell you what, Bill, take it home and get it off you tomorrow. And my dad was like, what? He's like, Johnny, no, no, no. I said, nah, come on, we'll have it by tomorrow. I'll get back tomorrow for him. So, so the belt didn't mean that much to me. It was never about the belt. So some kids, their goal is to become British champion, European, world. It, being British champion wasn't my goal. My goal, and it wasn't even to be world champion. I just thought, I've won, I've got it, I've won. Uh, at least I've come through. And um, when we got back to Sheffield, uh, Bill took, uh, took, the, took the belt. My dad was gutted. Like I just like stole up, stole his wallet. I just said, "Why are you doing that?" And I can imagine it was a proud time for my dad to to um, to go home with that Lonsdale bell, you know, and treasure it. But I wasn't thinking. I was thinking, "I oh, will do this old man a favour. It's going to be in my house forever anyway." So I, I remember him being. I remember him being hurt, but I didn't realise it at the time how hurt he was. 
hurtful it was what I did. It was a bit insensitive. We got to Sheffield. The, the coach stops us in, um, uh, in Sheffield, central Sheffield. My car was parked there. Uh, Brendan uh, and my dad, when he, when he got off, because my dad loved going to the casino, he said, I'm going to go to the casino. I didn't want to go and brag and bolster what his base, what his son had just done, won the British title, and he was on the undercard of Nigel Ben Michael Watson. I got in the car with Brendan. We drove back to back to back towards Ben to drop him off, and we drove. He got to his house. I pulled up. He said, "Just drive up the road." And it's about half three in the morning, and um, and there's a graveyard at the top of Newman Road. He said, "Stop, drop me here." And I said, "What am I dropping here for, Ben?" He said, "If you've done it, I'm going to walk through that graveyard because I've because I've, I've it, one thing that's always frightened me, one thing I, I thought I could never do." He said, "So for you to do this, Johnny, for you to win the British title." You, from your amateur experience to how you started, for you to do this, I've got to conquer one of my fears because you swum the channel. And so he got out of the car. And as he got out of the car and he's walking towards the, um, the graveyard, I'm like, shit, his wife, Alma's going to kill me because I'm like letting Brendan get out of the car. I'm saying, Brendan, Brendan, no, don't. I'll, I'll come with you. This time I'm papping myself thinking, oh, my God, do I really want to walk through the graveyard in the middle of the night because I've got to come back from the car? So I'm, I'm stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea, shall I, shall I, shall I? So as Brendan's disappearing into the dark, I said, Bren, Bren, wait, wait. He went, it's all right, it's all right. Disappeared. Uh, and I'm sat in the car thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, pitch black he disappeared into. I drove home and, and I can remember getting in bed that night and I didn't know what I was more worried about. I was stuck between, wow, I've just won a British title. And the fact that Brendan had just walked off into the graveyard in the middle of the night. So when I got up in the morning, I phoned him first thing. I said, Brendan, you all right? Did you get more? He started laughing. He said, yeah. He said, you should be proud of me, proud of yourself because you've made me conquer one of my fears and you've conquered your fear. He said, but there's a long road ahead. And I can remember it so well. And, and it was, it was, it was, a, it was, now looking back on it, it was, it was uh, part of the, 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 my, my journey in life. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. So what was the feeling around that fight within the within the trade and the boxing fraternity? Firstly, were you his, he was the champion, were you his mandatory? Uh, were you expected to win that fight? Was he expected to win that fight? What did people think was going to happen? I was not expected to win. Remember, I, uh, I, I'd, I'd come through and slipped through. And, 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 the, and the, the problem was at that stage, if you didn't have an unbeaten record, if you didn't have a, some sort of amateur pedigree, you were classed as, you weren't, they didn't even pay attention to you. The likes of Colin Hart didn't write about you. He might give you one line in the Sun newspaper. Uh, the boxing news, unfortunately, they never really, really gave you credit if you were up against somebody that had, had that kind of pedigree. 
Um, so, so I wasn't expected to win. Uh, and so when we went down on the, on the coach to, 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 to London, uh, we're down there in the smoke. It's a big deal going to London. It's all right for you guys, you live here, but it's a big deal coming from Sheffield to go to London. So when I got down there, nobody expected me to win, which was good. Um, and, 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 and by that time, I'd not gone through the embarrassment of the De Leon fight, but I just had the negative reputation of coming from the Winkerbank gym where we all walk in the gym backwards uh, and we're all dancers, we're all, but we, can't, we all slap. And that's the rep our gym had. So, so there was nothing formidable about me for them to, to sit up and pay attention. So the, the, the people that are supposed to know what's best and, and how, they, how they understand the game, I was written off. I wasn't expected to win. But how did, what was the feeling between you and Brendan and in the gym? Because, you know, Brendan's unorthodox, always was to say the least, wasn't he? And, and, and I mean, you spoke many times, Johnny, who was really good mates with my old amateur coach, who was from Ireland as well, Paddy Benson. And they were both anti-establishment. Brendan probably even more so than Pat. And, you know, you, in a lot of ways, you, you were you're unusual. You'd lost your first three. You, you know, you, you were coming for the British title. But I can't imagine that. Brendan had any doubts that you were going to win? Matt, you know what? I think you hit the nail on the head. Brendan was anti-establishment uh, because they gave him that much stick in the amateurs. And he knew, in the amateurs, I got disqualified probably six of my 13 fights anyway. Uh, they knew they, they didn't like his style, hands-down style. They want you to stand up straight, hands up one, two. So every time we fought and the referee would pull you saying, get your hands up, Brendan would be going mad. The amount of times you got Brendan got through out of the corner and, and he'd be shouting from a ringside seat, telling you what to do, and a bucket man would be dealing with you when he came back. So you, you was anti-establishment. So to him, it was a personal crusade for somebody like me to get inside the mix and win a British title because the people that say it can't be done, he's trying to say it can be done, and I'll prove to you it can be done. You don't have to be a, 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 an, an, Olymp, a, an amateur genius or a, an unbeaten fighter to get there, to get on top. So it was a personal crusade. So now, now I understand that's time had gone on when he said I was one of his most successful stories because I helped him fight the establishment and prove them wrong and prove his system worked. And, he, and even going into the gym, he, and he always said it, he never changed. He said, just listen to me. But he said, you haven't got the confidence to match your ability, but when you do, you'll never be beaten. And I didn't quite grasp and understand it at the time when he said it, it's not until I became world champion that I actually believed, I thought, ah, I know exactly what he's saying. And, and, and the, 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 the crux of it is, there was many fighters in the gym that, that we all got the same speech, but they just didn't listen. All they had to do was stick it out and listen. I stuck it out through thick and thin, through, through tribulations and everything. But, I, but when I eventually bought that Lonsdale belt home, it was like, I never ever thought I'd lose it. I just didn't. Even though I didn't have the confidence and think I was the best fighter, I didn't. Never, I didn't think there was anybody that could beat me in Britain. And that's so messed up that way of thinking. I just thought this is mine for life, and and it, and it was. But I mean, even listening to you talking about how you know he got dropped off and walked through the, you know the um, the graveyard, graveyard. one of his fears, and you know we. we Listen, we're always talking about boxing coaches and training programs, and you know you've got you've got pad men, you've got conditioners, you know, and you've got some good boxing coaches, and then you've got these real teachers, which are really 
you know, they're not, Brendan England ain't going to take anyone on 12 rounds on the body bag, but they're almost like philosophical, mm. you know, teachers, like life teachers, really. Like a customato, you know, he, you know, he wasn't taking Tyson on 15 rounds on the mitts, but he was teaching him about fears and things like this. And, and, and Brendan, for you, really, I mean, you're probably the, the you exemplify a lot of those lessons, like he said to you about going into the weigh-in against Andy Stroon, it'll all be on it. He was looking way past the technical, the left jab, the right cross, or the, you know, the, you know, the physicality. Mental warfare. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Mate, you go in his house, and he, he has books in his house of philosophy, uh, 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 leaders in, in war, uh, history, and, and, so, and, and, so, and, and, and boxing history. And, and so... You think I think about what he actually taught me, and it was more mental than physical. Physical was obviously a, a big part of it, but the mental side of it was everything. And so he saw my, me as a broken arrow, and he and he said, "If you if you have the confidence, that, and he, he, he grew me, but in a positive way, and and he did it with us all. And that's why there was guys in my gym that were much, 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 much more talented than I did." but never achieved a quarter of what I did. The reason why they didn't is because they didn't listen, because they didn't, when he'd be philosophizing, when he'd be, when he'd be trying to talk, he'd talk in riddles, would you say? You've either got to try to find your way through that riddle, and then he'd make it clear what he's saying to you, or you walked away. Uh, and, and, and I was always curious, and I, was always, I always loved the story. I always loved the stories, what he told me. And I was envious of his kids. I'm thinking, he's your dad. Can you imagine what the stuff you talk about? So, so all the time, it was all more of a mental job than anything else. Because even when I, when I beat Andy Strong, uh, again, each fight, you'd get sick of it. But I think I was defending against a guy called Ian Bullock. And Ian Bullock, he... He, he was... He was I, I boxed him in the amateurs. And he beat me up, literally beat me up in the amateurs. And Brendan said to me, um, he said, right, when it comes to the weighing, Ian Bullock was from a mining village just up the road from here. It was from a mining village just up the road from here. So, so, and at the time, it was a miners' strike, all the stuff's going on with the miners. And Ian was there with his friends and everything. He said, when you go to the weighing, I want you to go by yourself, put a shirt and tie on, big long trench coat on, trench coat on. I want you to to, to uh, just go in there by yourself and they're going to say, where's Brendan? Even he doesn't think you'd, want, you'd win because this kid's beating you the amateur. Amateur, I said, Brendan, I've got to go by myself. He said, yes, by yourself. So I drove up to the, you know, I white Ford Sierra ad. Uh, I walked up to the, um, uh, drove up to the, to the where the, the press conference was, walked in and, and true to form, Brendan had it spot on. I got in there, they said, where's Ingle Nelson? He doesn't even think you'll win. And, and Brendan said to me, I want you to build his confidence up from him to think you're still the same guy you boxed in the amateurs. So it's all mental warfare. And when yeah. it came to fight, I think it lasted two, three rounds and smashed it. And this kid couldn't understand how that kid he beat up as an amateur had come through. And so, so going down to London to fight Andy Strong and seeing all the flashing lights and Nigel Ben and Michael Watson and, and all the cameras and, and everything there, to me, I was as excited and taken aback like everybody else, thinking, oh, my God. But it was an experience uh, uh, so to give me the wisdom. So when I came back to Little Old Bowls Over, I'm thinking, I just boxed in Finsbury Park. 
I've just seen big time, you know. And so, um, so it was, it was all, it was all a, a building platform. But he always said, it's not going to be a smooth ride. And it took, that, that win took your confidence to another level and your self belief. Yeah, yeah. So, so to a level that's got me to the next step. It didn't take me yeah. to a world class level, but it, it took me to a level where where I knew domestically. Uh, uh, the, the kids I fought domestically weren't good enough that had not experienced what I'd experienced and so and I, I still thought I was on a hustle so I remember when I won the British title I didn't think I'm good I thought I was on a hustle I thought bloody hell I'm just boxing crap kids here I'm alright uh, and so I never I, up to that point I thought anybody I boxed were just not very good and it, now I, I realised I was disrespecting them saying that I was actually better than what I give myself credit for So what was going through your mind when you first heard that you had been chosen for what was a voluntary for Andy Strong because he was the champion. As you say, he was the home fighter. You were recruited, supposedly, to be somebody that he would beat and look good against in the Super 10 alongside Nigel Benn. And then he'd take a seat ringside and watch his stable mate win that fight. And this is what was supposed to happen. So I'm always interested by this. When did you first... Brendan would have got a call... And he would what? He would discuss it with you or he would decide whether you were going to take it or not? And what went through your head when, when you were told you are fighting for the British title in a tent in Finsbury Park? Brendan told me I was boxing Andy Strong for the British title. I said, really? He said, you can beat this kid. He didn't ask me. He told me. He said, you can beat this kid. Uh, he said, it's perfect. And, 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 I, and I trusted him from day one, never to put me in a situation where, where it didn't benefit me. Even in fights I lost. He put me in a situation where I still benefited emotionally, mentally, prepping for the future. Uh, so when I got the call to fight Andy Strong, uh, and Brendan told me I was fighting him, um, once, if he believed in it, you know, once he, he said you're doing it, I knew he thought I could win. I knew he thought at, at that point, you know, I knew he thought I could win. Because the difference between boxing Andy Strong and being called as his... Because I was basically meant to lose. I was his piece of meat. I was his soft touch. I was that like that, you know, we've got this kid here, we'll get rid of this boy and then we'll move on. I don't know if it was Andy Strong's chance to to obtain the Lonsdale belt or he just won it. It might have been his chance to pull, win the Lonsdale belt from that fight. He'd won it and, and he'd won it against... Um... He'd won it against TJ, then he'd lost it, um, and then he'd won it back again. Um, so this would have been his third British title fight. At that point, you needed three wins in British title fights. So, so yeah, if he'd beaten you, then he would have won it outright. And that, and that was it. So, again, that was the soft touch. And I can remember TJ. TJ was a massive, chunky African cruiserweight. And he, he, he totally outboxed and peppered TJ and, 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 and give him hell. And TJ was always one on the peripheral. He probably would have uh, measure him to modern day. Uh, he's passed away now. I'd measure him to someone like Derek Chisora. Big unit. He can fight, look strong and solid, uh, aggressive. And he bulldozed you through if you let him. And Andy did a job on him. Uh, so so when, Andy, when I was pulled in for Andy, uh, Andy Strong, I don't think Andy Strong gave me the time of day. So it's a, it's a done deal. And, and you wouldn't, because if they realistically did, there's no way that they're not paying as much attention as what they should have done uh, in preparation for the fight. They, they overlooked me. Uh, they, they thought, and that's why I got most of my opportunities because I was overlooked. They'd look at the record and think, ah, this kid's won and lost, you'll beat him. You know, and that's what they did. And that's why 
up until boxing for the world title, every shot, title shot I got was because uh, um, was because they thought I was beatable. Uh, I could I was overlooked because I thought they thought I was a tough touch. It's interesting stuff. It really is. Thirteen and five going into that fight. I mean, if you'd lost that fight, what would that have done to you? Do you think? Uh, I'd have plodded on. Um, Brendan said, "You know, it's all about learning." And he said, and, "And I believed him. I believed him. Remember, I lost the first three, and I kept boxing on. I kept boxing on, and I believed him. I didn't think boxing was my career, was my life, because I was fighting in five fight chunks." After five fights, I thought, that's me done. I'm going to get a proper job. And then I thought, I'll have another five fights. And I'll have another five fights. I won a British title. I thought, I'll get the Lonsdale belt. Uh, uh, and then then I'm done. Boxing didn't define me. Boxing wasn't my life. Boxing wasn't what uh, uh, I measured myself by. I didn't think I was like your Matthew Macklin's. Uh, coming through where, you know, you, I didn't think I was like the Nigel Benz. I didn't think like I was like the, the Harold Graves because these guys had pedigree. These guys had done everything in the amateurs. So I didn't think I was anything like them. I just thought I was just lucky to be in that in that spot. And, and me talking like that, Brendan understood that I didn't actually realise what I could do. And that's why he said, you know, it'll take, you'll not come good until you're in your 30s. I just won a British title. He said, you'll not come good until you're in your 30s. Uh, and I thought, I won't be boxing when I'm, t- when I'm that old. <laughs> no way. That's old. And uh, he was spot on mine. Well, we'll now fast forward to 10 years later when you were in your 30s. Uh, and I'll fill in some of the gaps. Many people will be familiar with with plenty of this. It was two fights after you beat Andy Strawn that you took on Carlos de Leon for the WBC title. Uh, that finished in a draw. And as a result of which, I don't think it's too strong to say that you were... You were radioactive after that. You were treated like a, a bit of a pariah by the boxing establishment, by by TV, and it was a, a difficult road for you from that point onwards. Everybody questioning your backbone, your minerals. The yeah, A had all sorts of things slung at you. You really did. Uh, but you went on to win the, the European title in Germany, which is no mean feat. But then in 1992, you challenged for the IBF in, in, uh, in the USA against James Waring, and that didn't go your way. And then after that, you went on a little bit of an odyssey. You hit the road. Uh, you boxed a lot of heavyweights. You boxed all over the place. I've got them written down here. The UK, but only twice in 10 fights. France, South Africa, Australia, Belgium, Thailand, Brazil. Um, lost a few, lost four of those. Uh, and then you were back back in the UK, got six wins in a row, regained the British and the European. Uh, and then came the fight in March 1999 against Carl Thompson. It's your third shot at a world title, you're 32. And I think it's probably fair to say that this is it if you're going to become a world champion. Uh, and Thompson was 24 and four, formidable fighter. Um, won the title in Germany against Ralph Roccagiani, which is, again, a serious accomplishment. He was winning the first fight and then his shoulder went, didn't it? And... And it wasn't an accidental foul. So it was, it, he lost by TKO essentially. And then he had the two fights with, with, with Eubank. So again, this is a good make or break scenario because is that fair to say this, this, this is your third and final shot at the world title? And if you can't... I promised myself there was no fourth chance. So I boxed the first time against the Leon, like you said, I drew for that. I wasn't over that emotionally. I wasn't... Uh, and, and that 10 years between beating Andy Strawn and, and fighting Carl Thompson, 
Uh, if I could go back and change it, I wouldn't change a thing. The best thing that could ha- could have happened to me in hindsight at the time, it was the worst. Being being ostracised and having to travel travel all over the world as a sparring partner was what made me the fighter that beat Carl Thompson. What what because the penny had to drop for me. No matter how much Brendan told me and talked to me and said you've got to do this and told me history and told me stories of other fighters. No matter how much he went over and over and over again, he just wasn't sinking in. So the the final hurdle was to send me as a sparring partner away, because then you're on your own. Then you're then you've got to decide if you really want it or not. And 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 it was genius. You just said it's what you got to do. You're by yourself. There's no body holding your hand. So if you want to do this, you're going to do this for you. Uh, but it's going to affect every aspect of your life if you don't. So you kind of said do it, do what you want, but do what I'm telling you. Um, so when it came to boxing, Carl Thompson, that. If you, if anybody can see the fight, uh, the the difference between the two fighters, Johnny Nelson against Andy Strawn and Johnny Nelson against Carl Thompson, you saw a man in a man's body in the fight against Carl Thompson, whereas you saw a boy in a man's body in the fight against Andy Strawn. So, so I knew when I got in the ring when I was going to fight Carl Thompson. Again, I was so acting mental warfare because I'm, I'm groomed, I'm, I'm whispered in my ear by Brendan telling me how to think and listen, looking at how we operate, looking at how we, he use uh, uh, philosophy on fighters. Uh, so, so I now know what I've got to do. I know Carl Thompson being into amazing fights with Chris Eubanks. I used to be a fan of Carl's. I see him knock people out, an unbelievable physique on him. And I was a fan of his. I used to go and watch him with my mates and say, watch this guy here. And then I can remember seeing Carl before we even, I knew that, uh, because it was all about Carl Thompson now, and um, we're, we're coming through. Even though I was kind of before him, obviously came on the scene. I knew that we would fight. We we were on the same weight, but we could fight eventually. And there was a club in in Warrington called Mister Smiths. And uh, my girlfriend at the time I walked in the club, and uh, she said, "There's a guy over there. He's been chatting me up. He said he knows you." Not really. So. I looked on the dance floor, Carl Thompson doing all these soul spins, looking funky on the dance floor. I said, I don't know him. And uh, so he was just trying to chat me with a girlfriend up. And uh, oh, then that was it. So this time now I'm collecting bits of information, not realising it's going to come useful. Uh, eventually, Carl boxed Chris Eubank. Uh, I should have boxed the winner of Carl and Chris. And, and um, Chris's trainer, uh, what's his name? The um, What's his coach called? I can't remember his name. Um, Ronnie Davis coach a ball guy from down south Ronnie um, Davis Ronnie Davis yeah Ronnie Davis afterwards said to me if Chris won we were never going to fight you because I'd already sparred with Chris before that and I batted Chris in, in sparring and so 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 and Ronnie Davis that was said, that interview uh, Johnny when uh, Brendan when Chris Eubanks on the top table and Frank Warren and Brenda grabs them or grabs the mic and he goes, What are you on about? You came down to my gym, I gave you 300 pounds. Johnny Nelson stood you on his head. Yeah, <laughs> I, it was funny. But was was that, that's what I'm saying. So, so that's what I'm saying. So he knew. And he, that was funny that because Chris was so mad. It was like a little child stamping his feet in the ring. Tell him to stand still. Tell him to stand still. And he was there as, um, he was there as, as, as Harold Graham's sparring partner. And uh, and he stayed there until he knocked uh, until he put Errol Graham out, knocked Errol Graham out, and then he just left. He just left. Once he knew he hit, if he hit Errol, he got rid of him. He knocked him out. 
But Brett Errol didn't turn up one day to, to train, and I trained with spar. I spar with with Chris and just mugged him off. So anyway, so so Carl boxed uh, Chris Eubanks the first fight, and and unfortunately the cruiserweight division is not a glamorous division, so there's not many names where people recognise or know. So so then. Uh, so I thought, well, it'd be good if, if Chris wins, because if Chris wins, and I box Chris, everybody will know who I am. Everybody will know what I could do. Everybody will be, you know, they'll know who Johnny Nelson is. And and it'll be a bit of redemption because, uh, again, I was a pariah. Nobody, nobody liked me. I just got stick in the, in the newspaper. They got stick in the, in, in, the, in the boxing news. People just district, proper disrespect me. And so um, I wanted Chris to win. But then, obviously, he and Carl bought, but Carl beat the first fight. It was an amazing fight, really. It was pure war. And I think the media wanted uh, Chris to win because it was box office. And uh, uh, Chris lost. So, so they, 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 an instant rematch. It was a rematch they, they wanted. And so, I didn't get so step aside. in the rematch. You stuck Pardon? in there. He, I was at the rematch in Sheffield. He closed his eye, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. And in the so in the first fight, Chris showed so much cojones and, and 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 determination, and it was such an amazing fight that they they did a second one, and, and they, they I didn't even get step aside money, you know. So I'm sat there, and, and Brendan, I think it's probably I can't remember. It must have been 13 months before I I, I um, before I got the the crack, and he wouldn't let me fight anybody else, Be, and um, and. Uh, and, I, and, and the reason why is because he said, if anything happens and you lose your chance, you'll never get another chance again. And, and the reason why he said that and what compounded that was Jonathan Thaksin was fighting a guy, was, was, had, was lined up to box for the world title. And, and uh, he, want, he was begging Ben, said, Ben, I want to fight. I want to fight. I'm, I'm sick of waiting. I need to fight. And Ben said, look, be patient. Let him fight. Then you'll fight. And then you've got to crack at the world title. You'll be straight for it. And I think Jonathan Thaksin ended up pestering Brendan and Paddy Byrne said to Brendan um, he said I've got a fighter Jonathan will be his name was Emmanuel Augustus I think his name was yeah. and uh, and Jonathan got into fighting and, and he got battered he got beat up he lost his chance for to, to fight for the world title and he just took a chance that he shouldn't have done and Brendan said you saw what happened to Jonathan this is not going to happen to you you've got to crack for the world title you are guaranteed to fight the winner of these two sit tight and God, God, good on him, Brent, because you, you know it's like, Matt. If, you, if you're not fighting, you ain't getting paid. I wasn't getting paid. I didn't have a job. I had no money coming in. Brendan gave me £250 every week. He said, but don't tell anybody. Yeah. If you tell anybody, I'm going to stop paying you. And I'm like, and he said, you keep your mouth shut. Tell anybody I'm giving you this, I'm going to stop. He said, there you are. Live on. £250 every week to live off. I thought, this man's not doing this for a slap on the back to say, look at me. Look what I've done. Every week. So that's the only reason why I could last and, and not fight for 13 months or however long it was. And I had to wait. And, and that's what I lived on. So when it came to the chance for a fight again, I thought, I thought to myself, this guy has invested in me, in belief, and he's put his money away, his mouth is. He didn't say, Johnny, I want this money back when I fight. He said, yeah, that's yours. That's yours. That's yours. Every, every week. The only rule was I couldn't tell anybody. That was the only rule. So I knew it was from the goodness of his heart because he was a good man. And um, so when it came to fighting Carl in the build to the fight, he's, uh, again, it, it's the psychology of the fighter. You've got to understand that he knew Carl was hot on his sleeve. He knew Carl was very sensitive. He knew Carl was 
having trouble with Frank Warren at the time, so he's very paranoid. He knew Carl, um, um, uh, he, knew, he just knew he was a sensitive soul. They said, you've got to get him angry. You've got to make him fucking hate you. And I'm like, what? what? He said, you've got to get him to hate you because if he hates you, he's not going to think straight. And if he doesn't think straight, he's not going to be able to execute all the plans he's had in the gym to get you. So get under his skin. And old Lucy Brown Yes, that line falls on the right, babe Not that Maggie's Back in Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.